happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 93 for May the 2nd, 2018. My name is Wes Fryer, coming to you from Oklahoma City, where I'm the director of technology at the Cassidy School. And true to form for the first week of May, we have exciting weather here. We uh, actually have some tornadoes, but they're just south of us. It's no big deal. It's just another May night of tornadic activity here in central United States. And I'm joined by almost defended dissertation guru of all ed tech, Jason Neifer, Missoula, Montana. Jason, how does it feel to have turned in your dissertation? It feels pretty darn great. So um, went in on Sunday to my committee. Um, I've been working on a presentation for my proposal and uh, putting together some visuals to talk to my committee about. And with any luck, uh, one week from now, we can make it official and say that I am finally done 10 years after I started with the doctoral program process. And I did a math the other day. I've been in formal education 30, what did I figure out, 32 of my 44 years. So I think I need to be done with school now. So I I have no registration in for fall 2018, um, you know, pending good news next week in the results of my dissertation. And um, I am truly excited to be finally done with this process. And speaking of, I am a University of Montana student, but my day job is that I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school that happens to be located on the University of Montana campus, conveniently where my doctoral program is also at. And um, I like tech, as does Wes. And so lots of interesting news, of course, going on right now. So I want to start off with, and I was going to try to finally queue up an official EdTech SR breaking news bumper, but we're just going to have to go with like a that we do have some breaking news. Um, Cambridge Analytica has announced that they are shutting down after what most news articles are calling alleged misuse of Facebook data. And for those of you unaware of the uh, company, Cambridge Analytica was the behavioral or political behavioral um, uh, uh, company that is accused of utilizing um, apps that ask for too many permissions um, in a certain quizzes a couple of years ago that supposedly have been used to suck up a bunch of data to build voter profiles um, that ultimately supported uh, the Trump for presidency campaign in 2016. Of course, and the this, Brexit campaign. And the Brexit campaign. And actually, from my understanding, too, a number of smaller uh, political campaigns in Central and Western Europe were also uh, 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 beneficiaries, I'll say with italics, of the uh, Cambridge Analytica data set. And so um, there, I, I've seen a, a couple of different stories on this today. Um, the company did say in a statement that it was the media coverage and that they called the siege of media coverage um, had driven away basically all their customers and suppliers, which means that they were no longer able to effectively operate as a data data mining organization. I'm not really sure what to call them or how to analyze them. Political data organization, but you know, under pressure uh, uh, from the economics of their situation, they are ultimately shutting down. And, um, you know, I, I did a couple months ago suggest that we are 
we are in, in the era of a technology correction that we're going to start scaling back and reconsidering some of our, our engagement with things like social media because of things like the Cambridge Analytics scandal. But it's interesting that they're starting to become very real losers in the, you know, the post discovery of how this particular, uh, data collection firm, uh, you know, may have been used or misused in the 2016 election. So Wes, I'm sure you're not surprised by this news. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it would be interesting to see what happens, right? I mean, if you're going to prove to people that you're effective in swaying opinions and creating startling current events, it would seem that, you know, that might, might be in your favor, but, you know, it's, it's, isn't it interesting? Cause we, we talked about Cambridge Analytica a long time ago. And I think I even made a foil hat that I wore on the show one night as we're talking right. about this kind of stuff, because, you know, it is challenging to filter out and, and, and try to determine, uh, you know, noise and signal and, and all that when it comes to especially politics and, and the divisive polarized environment in which we live. But yes, I, uh, I'm not entirely surprised. Um, it is, I think, uh, a sign of the times, and we're going to be seeing – it's going to be interesting with what Facebook uh, does, right? Uh, I just dropped an article from uh, today from uh, CNN Money, CNN Tech, and it's about Facebook's conference. They've had the uh, – oh, what's it called? It's S8 or something like that conference. Um it's not the right thing, but it's their developer conference that, that they've been uh, having. And Mark Zuckerberg um, announced, among other things, or they announced, among other things, a new dating app that they're going to be uh, putting out. Because, of course, Facebook knows more about us than than anybody. So, you know, to what degree will people yawn at this and just kind of plug along with their lives and and think that uh, it's not that big of a deal? And, and to what degree will meaningful change happen? And I really think that regulatory change is what is going to be most significant because there's the threat of users quitting and, and things like that. But people are so invested in the platform of Facebook and it right. would be so hard for another platform. In fact, I, I heard some people and I don't have this article, but there was some conjecture saying that if there is regulation for Facebook at this point, scaling back, it could just even more solidify their, it's not a monopoly, but they're very controlling uh, market share, which which they have, because right. that could prevent any other contenders from accumulating the quantity of of information that we have. So, Jason, do you have any thoughts on what you know? What are what are would you be telling students when I've we've brought this up? We have a good article on our digital citizenship website about this. I mean, some of the things that we've had very little feedback and and need to look at more of the forms, but some of it is you know we're not on Facebook. You know, it doesn't matter to us. I mean, kids may just not really be tuning into that in terms of that demographic since they're on Instagram and Snapchat. Instagram owned by Facebook. Right, right. Yeah, and we have a story about that too. We should probably mention in a moment. But yeah, I, I did laugh. I, I did see a couple of references today to the dating part of Facebook. And it was like, Facebook, if you're trying to become perceptually less skeezy, don't start a dating app. Like that seems like it's a bit of a tone deaf uh, uh, piece. And I, I have no doubt that they could probably be extremely effective in the kind of matchmaker notion but it's part of what's interesting to me about um you know the whole online dating scene is that you know you the a lot of the a lot of the the uh, systems rely on you to do things like fill out surveys and, and and you know answer honestly 
um, you know, pieces so they can try to match you with, with another person. I would imagine that with the pure uh, uh, depth of data that Facebook has, it's going to be a little more uh, accurate in, in building a picture of you, whether or not they can use that to then, you know, find a, a good match in another person for a, for a romantic match is a, is a whole different story. But yeah, that is a pretty fascinating uh, development on the part of, of Facebook. Um, I, so a couple other things are related to that. You mentioned, um, uh, uh, Instagram, Wes, uh, that apparently, um, and I think this came from the, the, the F8 conference or the fake conference is go, or went on earlier this week. Something um, eight, yeah, and I forget what the name of it yeah, was. Yeah, F8 or something. The developer, yeah. Yep, it's the, the Facebook developer conference. And of course, that comes at an enormously unique time. But one of the things that, that came out of that conference is apparently, um, you know, uh, uh, Facebook has been using Instagram to help train artificial intelligence algorithms on how to spot uh, various types of images. And that's something that Google has been doing for a long time. It's obviously something, something Facebook must have been doing um, because of how great their logarithm is of, of spotting your friends and photos, for example. But um, they are utilizing that huge data set. And you know, we've talked mostly positively about big data um, on the EdTech Situation Room. But remember that you know big data comes from your data, right? Big data is only data because it takes a lot of little data and, and joins it together. And that's part of big data, right? If you want to create a machine that can identify photographs, you have to feed it an enormous amount of data that is uh, tagged, and that's the great thing about Instagram photos is that oftentimes they are tagged um, with hashtags, as it turns out. Um, that creates a, a means to kind of to train a computer. But, you know, I'm sure that you didn't know this when you were signing up for Facebook slash Instagram, but you agreed to allow for things like a logarithmic uh, you know, sniffing of your data as part of the kind of social media agreement. Interesting. I'm trying to bring up our live chat because we've got a viewer out there and uh, I had, I'm using a different laptop and Peggy's there. Hello, Peggy. Uh, restricted mode, interestingly, is blocked for our, blocks our video. I don't know if that's because all YouTube live, perhaps maybe that's a, a YouTube live thing, but it, it's blocked. But anyway, we're unblocked. If you are joining us live, please join us in our chat room. Um, we uh, are going to continue to break down the week's news and try and lend some uh, educational uh, analysis to that. And you can find all of our links at edtechsr.com slash links. And I would add to what you were just talking about, Jason, regarding Facebook. And we had a, a, set, uh, a speaker from uh, the OU Medical Center talking about adolescence and then also preventing teen uh, violence and school shootings and things like that last night. And they were talking about, you know, how, how teens can fall prey with this polarized political environment to, you know, parroting things and finding extreme voices. And just, it's so important that we help educate ourselves and, uh, and others around us about filtering information and not just, not just taking it from the mainstream fire hose, right? Whether that is, you know, Fox or CNN or whatever your local, you know, channels, um, you know, news, if it bleeds, it leads. And there's just, you know, there's so much that's going to, I think, continue to uh, divide us. And so I, uh, I would love to see amidst all of the discussion about Facebook and algorithms, just an increase in media literacy and an increase in sure. our ability to filter. And, you know, perhaps, of course, this is all up to Facebook. 
they can give us some tools that can cause us to, you know, sort of have the virtual wrenches to adjust some things and some streams. I mean, we've talked about that on the show. They've said, you know, for a long time, they weren't a media company. They didn't want to be a media company. Now they've admitted, oh, okay, I guess we kind of are. And we've got uh, a responsibility to certainly, you know, look at extreme content and trying to prevent you know, Facebook Live and and their platform uh, from being used in horrible ways. Um, but yeah, the cause of uh, learning how to filter information streams and you know what what kind of a digital newspaper do you want? I think AI is going to play a big role in that, uh, but it's going to be be interesting to see the role that regulation plays in all that. So, do you want to take us to that other related article? Uh, was it that was about the? Is it about? Facebook dating, or was it about the people first, maybe? It's the people first uh, commitment. And if anything else, and this is just kind of the headlines out of that, uh, the Facebook developer conference, but, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Zuckerberg uh, has doubled down and said that, you know, we this is an important moment for Facebook. It's important for, for us. We need to work to make sure that the... Um, that the uh, work we're doing is bringing people together and not pulling them apart. And, you know, there weren't, um, you know, a ton of, of, of really super detailed pieces of that um, as the, the conference played on. In fact, I, I found, or I found relatively little media coverage on it when I dug a little bit uh, this morning um, to find out if any specific initiatives have been announced. There's a lot of rhetoric at this point, but you know, it's an important moment for Facebook and honestly, it's an important moment for social media, right? Like if, you know, it turns out that, um, you know, it's, it's always going to cause more harm than good. Um, and I, I don't, I wouldn't argue that's not really where we're at right now because I can think of a lot more good that social media does in my life than harm, but I, I think we need to be conscious of it and, uh, you know, acknowledge that, um, you know, that, that great things can be abused if you're not careful and thoughtful about their implementation. And that's as true about classroom technology as is to the broadly how technology is, you know, significantly impacting our lives. Absolutely. Well, I'd like to take us to uh, actually an article. I will, I will link it so you can click on it because I was not very, <clears throat> very good about getting my, my links in. Uh, but this is from April 28th, 2018, and it's called remembering today's meat. And yep. It's from James Sokol, who was the founder of Today's Meet. And one of the really important um, privacy-related news things that's happening, and I think it goes into implementation at the end of this month in May, is the GDPR. And I've said that enough uh, with the, the full uh, you know, meaning of the acronym. It's the General Regulation on Data Privacy. And this is coming out of the EU. And so the... Um, the regulation is going to force companies to do a lot of disclosure about well, where data is kept and, and, and tr I think making companies be a little more plain English with their uh, disclosures, right? These 48 page iTunes disclose, you know, a acceptable use things that can change at any time. And it's, we know it's for the lawyers, but you know, what am I agreeing to? And that kind of touches on the, the Cambridge Analytica thing as well. Uh, because it was actually an academic researcher who was using these quizzes to gain this information. But, you know, it, um, it, there's, 
one of the tangible things, and if you haven't done this already, you need to, is take a look at all the apps that you've authorized Facebook to log into, yes. all the apps you've allowed Google to log into. Be aware that if you're going to join that I'm quitting Facebook crowd, you know, you could cut off account access. And so you really need to look at that and perhaps, you know, see about transitioning your your other web accounts to a just email and login instead of using Facebook. But anyway, this is an article that's the backstory of the creator of today's meet. Uh, he is an independent fellow who has run this wonderful back channeling website for 10 years, and he's just not going to be able to uh, meet the demands of the GDPR. And so he's closing up shop. And so it makes me wonder, you know, how many smaller companies, uh, smaller individuals even, are just going to have to throw their hands up when it comes to these data privacy regulations. And again, it could be a dark side to to regulation and to the pushback against the Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, and, and all of this stuff. Uh, you know, because part of the promise of the Internet, and it's the reality of it, too, you know, is that uh, an individual can have an idea, can learn how to code or, you know, connect with folks who do and can create a platform and tools like Amazon's cloud. And, uh, you know, there's a Google cloud. Microsoft is in that mix. I mean, these are are scalable tools that can really allow things to grow and and and, uh, you know, have a, a life that wouldn't have been possible if you were just back in the early days where you had to run a physical server, you know, from your location and pay for that Internet connectivity. Uh, it's a very different day development wise. So I am mourning the loss of today's meet. It's a fantastic uh, and has been a fantastic tool. I do think it's important for us as educational leaders and teachers and parents to be very attendant to data privacy. Um, actually, at my father-in-law's funeral, we had a conversation with my cousin uh, who was involved with a small district. I think I think this was uh, where his kids are in the Dallas area. But I mean, they were not they didn't have HTTPS and some basic encryption on. Uh, for some forms and for some student information things. And he was ended up meeting with some people and asking some questions and they've made some changes. You know, I remember not that many years ago being in a workshop in the Dallas area and there were some Dallas area technology departments and probably legal departments that really were questioning today's meet and some of these other tools because of this idea of, well, because of COPA and FERPA and these laws um, and this idea that, you know, if you were under 13, you know, you, you sh shouldn't participate in it. So the last thing I'll say before I toss it to you is this idea of anonymous, you know, chat and anonymous tools, because, um, you know, I'm fortunate here living in central USA to not feel really chilled and oppressively restricted in my ability to express myself and to publish things. That is not the reality in different parts of the world, certainly in, in parts of the Middle East, uh, some countries I've, you know, traveled to and been able to present in, you know, where journalists are, are disappeared still and, and, and people are killed and people are arrested. And, uh, it's, it's not a situation of, of people being empowered to speak freely. And so it's, it's important that we have tools that allow people to anonymously express themselves. There certainly is a dark side to, you know, open chat and you can have this happen just in a classroom with kids, right? If they think there's no accountability, then you're going to have some kids do some stuff that's probably not appropriate. 
And so I think it's important from a digital citizenship standpoint. But that said, good article. I like the way that uh, James Sokol gave really a lot of backstory to today's meet, how it grew, you know, how it developed, um, how it really was an outgrowth of the feedback he got from educators that took him on this 10-year journey. But very sad that that's coming to a close. Um, I would add two things to this. The first thing that this whole today's meet thing is is interesting to me because of the other services that are also adapting and modifying their service based on these new rules in the EU. And I guess one of the things that keeps coming to mind to me is that how global is the world, right? Like obviously the European Union represents, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of, of users. So obviously companies cannot ignore uh, that large of a group, but we are really impacted by what the European Union does in regards to technology regulation as we are a truly independent world, especially relates to the internet. And we talked about the so-called right to be forgotten. Um, this was probably a year or so ago here on the podcast. And that is a European Union notion that if information is dated and no longer relevant, which is a very, very loose standard, uh, then the, they're, they've ruled in the European Union that, that a, a user can go to a Google or a Bing or a DuckDuckGo and say, hello, I, this information is no longer relevant. Here's the proof. And then it just goes away. Um, so, for example, uh, let's say like a DUI conviction. You're uh, uh, accused of a crime. Um, you do your time. You, you uh, complete whatever restitution is part of that. And after a few years, you feel like that information is no longer relevant and, in fact, maybe biases you, even though you've you know, so-called paid your, your debt to society, that people feel like that information should go away. And although that has not sparked as much change in the Internet uh, as I think people estimated at the time, let's not forget that what happens in, in the European Union will impact the rest of the world in regards to how the technology works. And so yeah. and we need to be cautious. Tying it back to Facebook, you know, that's one of the things we're watching to right. see if the restrictions that Europe is going to require for their citizens and for folks living inside the EU are going to be isolated by Facebook and the rest of the world is going to have sort of a different privacy standard or if those restrictions are going to basically be applied broadly to everyone. I think there's been some quotations of Zuckerberg saying, you know, he's going to um, – you know, apply those everywhere. And so the increased uh, focus on disclosure and, you know, simplifying or at least clarifying uh, some of the permissions and things like that is going to come, come to everybody. But I think it's, uh, you know, there, it, it's going to cut both ways. And so while I think we've done a yep. lot of hand wringing over privacy, uh, of course, we've mentioned this before on the show, our tendency as a government is to, is to the pendulum to swing too far one way. And I think somebody who actually talked to Zuckerberg when he was under the grill a week or so ago, I saw a clip of, of this uh, congressman or senator, I don't know, legislator. And he said, you know, remember, we're either basically with our heads in the sand, not doing anything out of touch or were, you know, grossly um, overreacting. And, and that's perhaps, you know, perhaps what we'll see, but maybe not. And I, th I do think it's pretty in instructive that Europe is leading in this regard. You know, I think we in the United States tend to kind of feel like Silicon Valley and we're, you know, we are uh, and have the, the, the innovation ha have had uh, the leading edge of innovation in so much of technology in Silicon Valley is what, you know, people want to try and replicate but this, you know, build it and, you know, build it fast, see if it breaks, you know, try to try to make it again. Um, 
you know, it's, it has, it has repercussions and I think it has repercussions far beyond what, you know, Zuckerberg would have ever imagined in his college dorm room that it could have. And even today, I think I regret at this point that there's not more direct accountability for him. I think we kind of give him a free pass, like this is your company. So yeah, you made a mistake. So just go back and try this again. If this was a different company, I think heads would roll and it would include the CEO. And so it's in in some ways kind of fascinating and they're kind of a unicorn in that respect, perhaps, that he's going to get a free pass. How many free passes is he going to get? As there's been some good articles about, you know, how many apologies throughout the years. And this is just another apology from them. So, yep, there it is. All right. Okay. Uh, one, one, one other thing on the today's meet. I am going to see about running a local instance of Etherpad. I'll put this link into the chat. Um, I was able to last leap year. We have a, sometimes we've got a, uh, oh, I guess I'll put this on as a geek of the week. Um, I'll, and I can talk about it there. So I'll, I'll throw an Etherpad because, hey, this could be your local, uh, local version of a today's meet, but I'll talk about that later. Okay. Great. Um, so moving on to maybe a, a, a broader geeky thing, uh, T-Mobile and Sprint have announced that they will be attempting um, to unify forces, and I believe it's merging. I don't think one is buying or, or one's buying the other. Although um, my understanding is that we'll we'll probably record they'll keep the name T-Mobile and we'll recognize the current CEO of T-Mobile, who is somewhat of a um, uh, a larger than life character will continue to be the CEO of the new combined company. But, uh, after like years, two or three years of rumors and fits and starts and broken negotiations, a team mobile and sprints, that's the number three and number four mobile provider in the United States will be joining forces to become one company. And, um, I've, I've seen some various accounts for this. Basically it becomes now from a, uh, 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 user standpoint, you know, uh, amongst the, 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 the top three competitors for the top. They're not, it, I don't know if there's a, uh, I've, I've read conflicting information of whether or not they'll be the largest company or just amongst the three largest companies, but they certainly are going to rocket, uh, from the third and fourth spots to be something a little more proactive. So, uh, both Wes and I are T-Mobile users. I guess maybe that's full disclosure. We're both fans of the service. Um, first, Wes, are you concerned about T-Mobile joining forces with Sprint? No, I don't think so. I think that it, it, you know, they need to to be giving a better run for the money with with Verizon and with AT and T. Uh, you know, we're we're T-Mobile customers. I think you are as well because it's been yep. a better value. Uh, there's been more bandwidth. I mean, shockingly, more bandwidth available. Um, our kids have not really ever had to deal with this. Oh, I ran out. <laughs> you know, of bandwidth, which has been a reality for a lot of folks. I'll try to find the link, but T-Mobile and Sprint have a website promoting 5G because they're really uh, wrapping this whole thing in, you know, talking about leadership uh, for the United States and how we need to to lead in, in 5G. And so I'll pull that out. But it's, um, you know, I guess going to give them a lot more, a lot more money uh, that they're going to be able to invest. And, you know, I... <laughs> I'm amazed that the CEO of T-Mobile can get away with the profanity that he gets away with. <clears throat> and I'm not so, so not, not saying he's the, the best representative of <clears throat> ethical, you know, CEOs or whatever. I don't know. Um, maybe he's a great guy. All, all that side stuff to the side, but um, I'm glad to see it. I want that company to continue to thrive. I want to see us continue to have competition. It's really important. And we need more than two competitors. Um, they need to, to be meaningful competitors. And we've talked about this on the show, but it sticks in my mind that, 
when you talk about 5G with folks and what and the way that people think this is going to usher in a new revolution, LTE and 4G, you know, brought us Airbnb and Uber and Lyft and these different kinds of um, of companies that can be, you know, utilizing live live data. But LTE 4G today, if we're downloading a, a two to three gig video, like a DVD size, it's going to take about 30 minutes. They're saying over 5G, that's going to be like two or three seconds. So we're really talking about a tremendous leap forward. And, you know, part of the stuff John Laguerre, or however you say his name, the, the T-Mobile CEO is saying, is that, you know, X number of jobs are going to be created. And I don't know. I mean, who knows as far as that kind of economic uh, voodoo to, to make that kind of a prediction. But I am, I will say that this is going to have a sizable impact on our schools. And when students are, you know, pocketing a device that has perhaps hundreds of times more bandwidth than you have today on your entire network and they right. can make a hotspot and they can, you know, service the whole classroom. Um, wow, that's going to be really different. And it probably will start to beg the question at some point of, of our school networks, uh, in urban areas, right? This is right. also going to continue to be a rural urban divide kind of issue. So I'm excited about it. And I think that we need to continue on the regulatory side to really advocate for universal service to not leave rural America behind. Uh, Montana, like Oklahoma, very rural state. And so companies will tend to want to look just at return on investment and looking at those large metropolitan areas. And that's where we need to have, you know, Title II um, regulation, the FCC, uh, folks advocating to say, hey, we need electrification everywhere. Hey, we need to have, you know, broadband Internet everywhere. Right. And the um, at one point Verizon and they may have gotten this to pass, right, was was trying to get their device that allows you to have dial tone over the cellular network to substitute for the mandate for universal service and providing copper dial tone everywhere. And in part of that, too, with Internet, they were trying to say that five megs down was was plenty, that that was high speed. And so those definitions are going right. to continue to blur and change. And I think that we'll continue to see pressure, you know, on schools and challenges about access and that sort of thing, just because what we're going to have in our pockets or implanted in our brains or, where you know, wherever it's going to be on our watches Um not me yet, but anyway, <laughs> that's going to continue to, to, you know, to blow minds. So I'll find this website and, and drop this into the show notes. Uh, one last thing I would say about this is that uh, I worry, I worried a little bit about the, the risk to unlimited data. Um, but every article I've read suggested that unlimited data is, is the reality of mobile plans now. And so that's unlikely that T-Mobile will go in that direction. Um, the other piece that's also interesting is that a lot of analysts think that you are less likely to, to spot deals with T-Mobile. With T-Mobile uh, pretty frequently will uh, have pretty enticing deals to bring people into their arch their system, including uh, if you have four phones, you can get them for $40 a month and uh Unlimited data for each phone. Um, for a long time, uh, you had you had to get four phones, 
to get that $40 a month price, uh, right, uh, th- there are deals that go in and out where you can do two phones for $40 a piece or one phone for 60 a piece. And there have been a lot of great deals, one of which brought me over to T-Mobile originally about a year and a half ago. And again, I've never looked bad. I've been extremely happy with it. Um, the other practical reality is that uh, starting pretty soon, your phone will be able to roam on the other network. In other words, a Sprint will roam on T-Mobile uh, and T-Mobile will roam on Sprint towers with 100% speed and 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 be able to hand uh, hand things back and forth. And so um, that's another new thing that, especially if you're in a larger urban area that has good coverage with both, or maybe a decent coverage with one and 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 better coverage with the other, then you should see um, you know slightly better. Um, uh, sell speeds and maybe hands off from towers to towers. So, um, you know, it's always sad to lose a competitor, um, but we do have three large, prosperous mobile, uh, large super mobile groups in the United States, and I hope they continue to compete and drive prices down and make internet more available to the masses. Absolutely. That website is all45g.com, and that's Sprint and T-Mobile's Pro Merger 5G information website. So nice. Uh, let's talk a little bit of Google, uh, updating on an uh, article from last week. We had lots of Google updates, and I did approve, of course, uh, the uh, optional at this point update to the new Gmail and have had some positive feedback. I have not been able to find the lock that evidently allows you to, to, to restrict what people can do. Um, and I've looked for that. I need to do some more hunting because that's one of the features where you're able supposedly to say you can't forward this email or this email will expire. Right. I don't I know where that found it either. Yeah. I don't know where it is. Um, I thought maybe one of my extensions was taking it off and I checked with some other people. Um, in a, in at least one case, I had a, a user that needed to log out of her account in order to see the option to enable that. Um, but that's been positive and I think I've, I've enjoyed a little bit the ability to more quickly, you know, just scan over the, the subject lines of emails in the browser view, uh, and being able to, I haven't done much snoozing, but being able to archive or delete. Um, but one of the things that I think we referenced briefly, and I don't know that if we, t- we could have talked about this article, but this is from How To Geek on April 26th. Hey Google, why do you have four different task apps? Did we talk about this from last week? <laughs> we haven't. Uh, okay. Please, please do though. Yeah. So this is really important because, uh, whenever, if you've read or you check out the, uh, getting things done book by David Allen, the GTD, which is part of it, like inbox zero and this dream that maybe I'll live someday with, with inbox zero. Uh, you're not supposed to have your mail inbox as your to-do list. And you're, you really need to process through that according to the, the to this, um, you know, workflow and, and, and efficiency model. And then you have a trusted place where you put things that you can't quickly, you know, process through. And so anyway, I have been using Todoist because it connects with the Google home. And I think that's, you know, kind of cool. Um, but I've, I've tried a variety of different task apps through the years and, you know, Google has this new one. I'm, I am, by the way, definitely using their grocery list, but that was one of the things brought up by this article. So, you know, Google has a new task, um, app that you can not access directly within the, the mail app or the mail interface of Gmail, but you can have an app for your Android or your, your iPhone. But then, you know, they've still got this, you know, Grocery list that's a separate, you know, website that's different and all these pieces don't come together. So Jason, clarify this for us. Where can we go for task list nirvana? I'm sure you have, you know, surveyed the, the, the landscape and you can set me straight. 
Well, here's the problem with me and Tasselis. Um, a long time ago, I decided, or I, I figured out that I can't use a digital Tasselis. I have to do it on paper. And so I carry around my, I guess my innovation in that space is that I used to carry around composition notebooks. Um, you know, uh, they're, they're, you know, free for a dollar during back to school time. You can stock up and I have a, quite a few of them. But what I figured out pretty quickly was that it was, it, you know, and I, I have a couple binder clips sticking on mine and then usually it's full of, of, of other paper notes. And so it's, it's what I carry with me everywhere. What I figured out though was that digging out that, uh, composition notebook in particularly professional meetings, you know, looked pretty pedestrian. So it, it was usually pretty ratty and, you know, and those things last forever, but they do take some damage and they got coffee cup rings on them and, you know, uh, weather snot and other things. So, um, I, but what I figured out was that there is a large contingency and I bought mine on Etsy. I bought a, a, a kind of a faux leather cover for it. And so, um, it just slips right on over the top and it is a beautiful, a beautiful notebook that I feel like I can pull out in a professional context. And so I'm not probably the best person for this, but I will say that, uh, my wife and I, because it plugs into, uh, Google Home have used Wonderlist as a joint to-do list or not to-do list, but joint gr a grocery shopping list. And to be honest, it's pretty wonky. Um, there are times when, um, you know, uh, Allison will be at the store and she'll check things off the list. And the next time I go in the store, it's still on the list or I'll, you know, halfway through a shopping trip, I'll be going through the list. And there's things on there I don't recognize because, because I didn't add them on there. My wife did. And I'll have them in the cart. And then after I open the app two or three minutes later, four or five of the things disappear off of there because they were checked off previously and, and the app is just catching up. So um, I am encouraged by the fact that, um, that Google is continuing to innovate in this space, but I couldn't agree more with the notion, come on, like pick one and then just integrate it everywhere. Don't create different integrations for different sets and tools. So I, I have no help here. What about the Rocket Book? Have you given Rocket Books a shot? You know about that? Um, I do know about Rocket Books. I don't really ever scan or do anything with my information. So for me, the paper book works out pretty well. And when I do need to scan something, the Adobe PDF app or the one of the hundred pretty great scanning apps on phones are good enough to, to turn that into an image to save later. So I do have a friend that swears by Rocket Books, however. She is a very um, prolific note taker and finds the Rocket Book to be a great solution. And there are a number of great uh, 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 different kinds of notebooks now. I'm kind of a note, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm that much of a notebook snob because I obviously I use, um, you know, composition notebooks of which are, are cheap and plentiful, but um, I'm also vaguely interested in the notion of bullet journaling. That's the kind of artistic journaling movement that um, I, I do it mostly so I can post semi-mocking things about my, you know, kind of half not well-decorated bullet journal. But um, I, I, for me, the paper stuff is really where it's, it's, it's at for me. But, you know, I could be convinced by another list system, but every time I've gotten into an app, it just felt clunky and not flexible enough to do what I wanted it to do. Hmm. I'm not familiar with bullet, bullet journaling, so it's bulletjournal.com. I'll drop that um, in. 
Is that yeah, what you're talking about? Yeah, and if you go, probably the best way to look at it, if you go on Instagram and search for the hashtag bullet journal, a lot of people like posting on their bullet journals. It's, 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 it's a touch culty, but, um, it's great though, because it does encourage people to kind of use an artistic notion, encourage them to plan and organize. And you mentioned David Allen. I am a David Allen devotee myself. I've never been able to fully implement his system because it, it seems to take a little more bandwidth than I have to give, but I love this notion of to-do list. I love next action lists. And I also say the, the other reason why I like a paper one is there's something just so satisfying about crossing off something off the to-do list. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think that's a big piece of it for me in regards to, to task managers. And let's do a shout out for folks in schools that we need to not assume everyone out there will just magically know how to process their email, handle all their tasks, do all this stuff. Uh, we need to provide some some tools and share uh, our pain and our learning points. I am excited that we do this end of days series of uh, meetings professionally after the kids get out before graduation. And I do have a getting organized in Google Drive yep. session that I'm going to repeat twice. And I will, you know, be working to get some things together about task lists and some of these other things because, yeah, project management, just managing your life, managing distraction, all of these are big challenges for everyone. And we shouldn't just assume people can do that. Do you want to pick up that last Google article from The Verge about uh, the uh, Google Assistant startups? I was excited yes. about that. Um, so uh, uh, the Verge reports that Google is starting to heavily invest into startups that are working on Google Assistant, and I, I think the term is plugins, maybe, but they're they're ta they're pieces of, of functionality for the the Google Assistant, and that's really interesting to me for a couple of different reasons. First, um, as I've mentioned a few times in the past, uh, intelligent personal assistance was the topic of my dissertation, so I'm uh, deep in in that particular research, but. Um, I feel as though that the Siri has lagged behind a bit, and one of the reasons why is because even though they opened up APIs, app developers don't seem to have really jumped on the notion that you can connect an app on the iOS platform uh, to Siri, right? Like, I haven't seen anything, and I'm just an iPad user as opposed to an iPhone user, but I haven't seen anything to suggest that there's a lot being done in that space. Whereas Amazon has a dominant number of, they call them, uh, 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 recipes, ta recipes, tasks, uh, widgets, something. Um, they, they have a large number of, of, of those, um, skills. For the record, you have one of those in your, in your home. So I do, I do. Yeah. A couple of them actually, but uh, skills is what they're called. And the Amazon skills, uh, for, um, the, their pro products, there, there's a large number of them of which, you know, 90% of them are, are at best parlor trucks or junk. But the 10% that are there, you know, overlord over the Google Assistant and the Siri uh, platforms. And so if it, that tells me that Google's getting serious about this and that, remember, it's not just in the objects in your home. Google Assistant is built into most newer Android phones or can be put on to even older Android phones now. So this notion of creating an interesting uh, piece is is pretty great. So I'm I'm very excited um, about the prospects of IPAs getting even more functional in the in the uh, environment. 
Awesome. We've got some Apple news and some Microsoft news. Uh, why don't we go to Apple and I'll take the, the airport article. Maybe you can do the iPhone X. Uh, Fortune magazine, not fortunate. I need to change that. Uh, reports on April 28th that Apple is killing its router, uh, Wi-Fi hotspot airport line. And so they will be continuing to support. I think I, I was hearing maybe for five years. So don't fret if you're like us. We've had, um, you know, an airport router for quite a while, um, but they are not going to be continuing that. That's been something rumored for quite a while. I think the folks who were working in that department of Apple actually got moved into a different area. And so, you know, people were reading those tea leaves and saying a while back that that was probably not going to be a growth area. Um, but they also announced, uh, let's see, where was this? Um, Oh, was that the iTunes thing? It was something about Windows and iTunes. I didn't actually. Oh, okay. Oh, well, that was the payoff. Yeah. Huh. A big move in the Microsoft Windows world where the company's iTunes is more readily accessible. I don't know. Anyway, who, do you know any Windows users that run iTunes? I run it on my Android. I, I do. I do like having my Apple music there, but that's because sure. I was living in that world and my right. family still is. So. Right. Well, and I used a I used an airport for a long time. I feel like that the airport really set the stage for what Google's doing now, the kind of elegant home um uh you know, managed by an app system. I used to love to be able to tweak things and make sure firmware was updated um with uh my iPad and iPhone when I when I had that as as network architecture and um you know, I I it's always a little sad to see those Apple products be de de be depreciated, partially because they all work so well together. And so, if you are a Mac person and you are deep in the Apple ecosystem, you know everything just talks so elegant elegantly together. So, uh, you know, I I will say that we do have more well thought through Wi-Fi products than we did when the Apple um, uh, Airport was maybe a necessary component. Um, uh, as opposed to, you know, uh, uh, then when there wasn't a whole lot and, and most Wi-Fi routers were, um, you know, seemed like a, a bit of magic and luck to get things to work. So it's a different market than it used to be, but I am sad to see that particular product go. Quick shout out to one of a related article, uh, best mesh router system, Eero versus Orbi versus Google Wi-Fi versus VLOP. Uh, this is actually just by a blogger, uh, Power Moves on April 18th. Um, I am continuing to contemplate that switch. And while he does give the Google Wi-Fi um, a positive review, um, he really says that the Eero Gen 2 is fantastic and then puts Linksys VLOP above it. Uh, both of those, they say, are faster in terms of transfer and performance than the Google Wi-Fi. But Google Wi-Fi is just drop-dead simple, uh, and it works, and so... Any of those next generation Wi-Fi mesh-ish solutions are going to be a positive for your home connectivity. Right. And I have a complete side note. Um, uh, earlier on in the in the podcast, for those of you that are longtime listeners to the podcast, know that I, you know, I, I for a long time I was experiencing issues with Wi-Fi in my home, and I, I suspected that it was a some kind of weird mojo in my house as opposed to the actual devices. And I have a new theory about this. Um, and I should drop this in. Maybe I'll talk about it a little more next week and drop it in the Geek Week next week. But um, I was trying to find some drivers for an older Windows laptop. This was three or four years old that was is, is not supported in Windows 10, the new version of Windows 10 that, that, that we'll talk about in a moment. Well, I was surprised by that fact. 
but the company it was a it was an HP laptop. HP was no longer providing Windows 10 drivers, so it wouldn't automatically find drivers with the HP support assistant. And so I found an open source application that scans and and downloads uh, uh, updated drivers, and they look for optimal drivers, even if they're older. So if Windows or your manufacturer has downloaded a driver that's not as optimal or functional, and one of the things that I discovered when I did this with uh, my desktop computer, which I have had Wi-Fi problems on, was that there was a there was a Wi-Fi uh, driver update available, and I updated the driver on my Wi-Fi uh, Wi-Fi on that desktop, and it immediately became much more stable of a platform. And so I guess maybe the, the note here is that I still think Wi-Fi is not nearly as consistent and as easy to manage in the home as it should be, but it could be even the hardware you're bringing to the, the game in regards to your laptop or desktop. So you know, update drivers, an important part of that process. Yeah. And then we've talked about this on a security note, uh, you know, firm, you know, maybe you're going to update your firmware. Maybe you're just going to update your, your whole hardware, but that needs to be part of what we do. You know, you buy a rake, it probably stays in your garage forever and you don't need to upgrade your rake. That's not the case with, you know, networking gear, whether that's your modem connecting to your, uh, your internet provider, or that's, you know, your, your Wi-Fi or your router, whatever. Right. Yep. Um, hey, what about the iPhone X, uh, Rumor from CNBC. Yeah, so uh, CNBC reported yesterday, and this was amongst a number of media outlets, to suggest that that uh, according to manufacturing sources of people that make the display for the iPhone uh, X, uh, they're ramping down. And so the way the market is reading most of this is that Apple is going to move away from that particular device. I'm a little more mixed by that notion because I, I know sales have been low and, and, and everyone that, that either has direct knowledge of it or indirect knowledge of it says that's not sold nearly as, 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 um, as Apple thought it might, uh, because being kind of the high end purveyor of hardware. Um, but, uh, it could be that there's going to be an iPhone X2 or an iPhone X dot uh, two or something along those lines, it wouldn't surprise me because Apple's done this in the past where a second iteration of a you know less than desirable product ends up hitting the sweet spot from from price and functionality. Um, the part that it does inspire though is that it seems like a lot of Android manufacturers have copied Apple and that they're releasing nine hundred and ninety nine dollar phones or one thousand dollar phones or eleven hundred dollar phones with premium options, but I wonder if Apple ends up going away from the iPhone X, you know, will will Android be left, you know, kind of out in the open? And uh, Apple did have a, a, a an earnings call. Uh, I can't remember if that was this was this week or last week. Um, apparently, the sales were stagnant, but profits were up, which means Apple, even though we're all talking about you know the end of Apple, um, and there's a ton of hang, you know, hand wringing media about that, they're still pulling in money like crazy. So absolutely, absolutely. All right. Well, let's talk some quick Microsoft. Uh, you are the Windows guru uh, in my life. Actually, I have a few, but um, what is what's going on with this Windows 10 update? You know, sure. Um, well, so uh, remember, Windows is no longer like new versions of Windows, right? We won't see a Windows 11 or Windows 19 or Windows 2020 or Windows you know 2020. 
uh, it's now just Windows 10. And every six months, Microsoft releases an update that is not just security updates. It comes with a number of new features. And so um, April brought a new uh, update to, to Windows. And um, it's interesting because this actually was supposed to roll out several weeks ago. But there is a or there were some sort of issues related to a lot of, of, of early adopters were starting to get blue screens of death or BSODs as they're known colloquially, colloquially, which is a word I can barely get out of my mouth, um, uh, uh, in the, the nerd world. But uh, there's not a ton of super exciting features, but I didn't want to talk about a couple of them. Uh, first and foremost, there's a new feature that's called Timeline, which is uh, kind of a different way to look at uh, what's going on on your computer? It's uh, it replaces what what Windows had called Task View, which was a very Mac OS uh, uh, OS ten like uh, 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 architecture. It would show you all open windows and kind of an expose feature and allow you to access multiple desktops. Um, I've played with this feature for only a few minutes on one of the laptops that I updated, and it seems fine. I mean, it's it's visually very pleasing. I think Windows ten is in my mind is the most uh, visually interesting of, of of Microsoft's, all of Microsoft's uh, operating systems, and that continues that process. Um, there is also a, an easy way to get uh, dictation in Windows. Um, they Windows has had a variety of interesting dictation to, tools on and off over versions of Windows, but they've now brought in a, a, a hotkey, so you can go Windows key and H on your keyboard and dictate into any app. So also very Mac-alike. That's a feature that has been around in Mac for a bit of time. Um, and then um, there's some visual uh, updates, uh, particularly related to apps that that are are they're blurry on big high definition screens that they then crank down the resolution on to make everything crisper. Well, not every app worked well there, and so there's a new design language that's that looks at some of those apps. And then more subtle things like what's so called quick Bluetooth pairing. Um, that sort of thing um, is part of that. The other one that's that's also seems kind of stolen. Well, it's stolen in my mind from from the Apple world. There's something called quick sharing now. My understanding is limited to pictures, but um, um, oh, I'm sorry, pictures, documents, and websites. It's very similar to Apple's AirDrop feature, but essentially two people can open up on the same Wi-Fi network, the sharing feature, spot one another, and then be able to share documents and photos back and forth. Speaking of which, do you know of a good way to do that Chromebook to Mac? Because AirDrop is phenomenal. I mean, that is a magical is. thing. Fast story. <clears throat> I've been able to help several of our teachers with some great ebook projects. Um, and uh, most recently, our seventh grade English teacher uh, had her 72, 73 kids all do books, and about half of them chose to do ebooks. They went to read these uh, books that they wrote to a local. Uh, elementary school to kindergarten first graders and so when she was saying she needed to do this i said let's just airdrop the books and so she had all the library ipads and you know 32 books all at once boom drop them there they all whoosh off to ibooks it's a beautiful thing it's truly magical so is there a way you would recommend taking uh pictures or other content from a an android and i said a chromebook from an android device and then being able to throw that. I mean, I'd like to do Chromebook to Mac as well, but Android to Apple. Is there a good tool for that? My guess is, is what you're looking for there is AirDroid. 
okay. is probably the easiest, and there's a free version of that and a paid version. It's it's how I uh, actually I I you log in through a browser in essence and be able to quickly transfer things back and forth to your phone. That's probably the closest to that. Okay, excellent. And pretty I wanna, great. I want to throw in uh, two kind of blow-your-mind articles. Um, first one, this is from Ozzy. Never heard of this. It's not Ozzy Osbourne. It's just O-Z-Y from April 29th. This geneticist is creating gene-edited animals for our plates. We've talked about CRISPR, which is this incredible technology that snips the genetic code and lets you know gen- geneticists take out something and then put something in the area where enzymes re-connect you know connect it. And so this is an article about uh, Allison Van Enenam, and she has uh, snipped the genetic code of female cows so that they're born without horns. And it's evidently very painful to dehorn dairy uh, cows, and they need, you know, they feel like they need to do that to prevent farmers and others from, you know, getting gored. And so this is just really a big deal. And it's a fascinating article. It's another one about CRISPR. CRISPR is one of those technologies to watch and to let kids know about. If you can get any students, you know, oriented towards genomics, genetics, biotech, it's an industry of the future. Um, You know, I should probably be investing right now if I was one come to do that on companies that are doing these kinds of things. And it's also interesting how they talk about, that GMOs are different from genetic changes that CRISPR does. So that right. was a great article. And then this one uh, blew my mind. New York Times, April 26th, how a genealogy site led to the front door oh, of the Golden State killer suspect. I, so, how did I not put this one at the top of this week? We should we should pick up back on this topic next week. But I think I mentioned that I did. I, I can't remember which one it was, but I did one of the ancestry blood things. And it was it. It was as I expected, and it found my aunt who who was 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 I knew was on there already. But this seems to have such. Well, actually, we should say maybe talk about what the thing the Golden State Killer, thirty uh, year old crimes. They had DNA samples, but they didn't have anything to match it with in the databases. So it sounds like what they did is they grabbed one of these kits for ninety nine dollars. They somehow inserted the DNA into the little bottle and you know corked it up. Sent it in the mail, fake name, sent it off to whatever the service was. And they and said then, it wasn't Ancestry.com or, or 23andMe, but there's other companies that do this. Right, right. And then based on that, they were given a genetic report that included relatives of the accused serial uh, killer, right? So I, I, this seems to have such shocking constitutional implications to me. And when I, when I first read this, it like, it blew my mind because yeah. I, I mean, I, I thought this was so totally cool. Like when I did this, like I was very interesting to point out some things I didn't really know. I've got all these eighth cousins running around the United States. I had no frame of reference to be paranoid that I've now exposed myself to overzealous law enforcement. And it's not just you. It's it, because this was not, um, saying that everyone's going to have to be in the genetic code. It found, uh, because this guy who, who was arrested or whatever as this, as this killer, there were relatives of his that had done that, and they were able to trace back and then cross-reference, you know, other kinds of databases to find somebody in that age demographic. And so what it means is this, this menu of genetic information, uh, even if you don't participate and send in your DNA, law enforcement and authorities. And that also means other, you know, 
less scrupulous individuals and entities will be able to get that kind of information and use it. So I think we would all agree that, you know, if indeed, and it appears it is, this is the killer. Great that they've been brought to justice. Uh, great example. But like you, Jason, I, I, I listened to this actually, I think first on my Google home, you know, news and then looked up the article and just my jaw drops. I said, Oh my gosh, here it is. This is one of the things that civil liberty defend, defending organizations have been talking about in the ways in which these, um, these things can be utilized for ways that people never intended. And I think it even goes beyond that because we're talking about, you know, people in your genetic family. And so right. you don't, you may not decide to participate, but because others have, then, you know, the cat's out of the bag. So this is obviously a good case of law enforcement arresting someone that, uh, you know, had, had done terrible things. And, you know, it's not a, a case of, of the innocence, but gosh, where does, where does it go next? Maybe we can talk yeah. about a little, a little bit more uh, on the next show. Cause that's probably something we can dive into even deeper and probably read a little more of some analysis and where some, sure. with, you know, with the, with the EFF on that. Well, Any sir, uh, shall like we, before Geeks of the Week? I think we should Geek of the Week it. I think we've done a pretty good job of covering our, our, our load here. Okay, I'll go. Uh, Etherpad, uh, etherpad.org. This is a free open source tool that allows you to um, synchronously create documents together. And um, some of the websites that used to host this for free have since gone offline. Um, but I actually think I may run this at school. I think it's very, very powerful to have tools like this that you can can edit live. And I love how this has the colors. One of the things I love about Etherpad is you have a document you create, and then there's a chat area over to the side because that's one of the things that people tend to want to do when they're in a live synchronous environment is, oh, let's have a chat. So you got a space to do that over on the side, and then you have a document that you build, and everybody you know gets their own color. So absolutely love that. And then um, main one that I put was this Chromebook inventory add-on for Google Sheets. Uh, we are uh, looking, not looking, we are ordering a refresh of one of our Chromebook carts. And then uh, I'm excited that we're going to, uh, looks like, add a seventh cart at our middle school. And <clears throat> I needed to grab the inventory. And so uh, you can't just do that, interestingly, as an export straight out of your Google admin panel. But this is a... Um, an add-on for Google Sheets by New Visions Lab. Um, and it's a little old, but still works. And it pulls all that data down and lets you have that to sort and process however you would like. So Chromebook inventory for Google Sheets. And then I'd like to point out um, that I thought maybe this had been covered uh, previously when uh, during my absence, but I didn't find it in the document. Uh, Adobe has announced that uh, announced Adobe Spark for Education, which is a premium version of Adobe Spark for schools, and it's completely free. And so um, what's really interesting about that is that it not only adds in all the premium features you should have to pay for in Adobe Spark, uh, it also allows you, or it also is set up in a way that my, is mindful of student data and privacy. And so we've started setting up this tool at the Digital Academy. Um, it's going to require some uh, setup on our Google email system. We have to register back and forth to make sure domain names are, are accounted for, yada, yada, yada. But basically, it's going to allow, it's, my understanding, it's going to allow for single sign-on from Google. Um, it will recognize you as, as an as a MTDA student or faculty when you log in from a specific email address. 
and then you get access to that extremely premium tool, which is web-based and also on iOS devices. I'm hoping for an Android version of Adobe Spark at some time in the near future. Um, I'm I'm a Canva user, so Canva is my Adobe Spark-like product. Um, and I've, I've got an impressive library of interesting, great designs in Canva now, but it'd be very tempting for me to maybe move towards uh, Adobe Spark now that a premium version would be free to me as an educational user. Fantastic. Adobe Spark has a, a great video app that we've just loved on the iPad. That's just wonderful for the menus and, and wizards that it provides. Um, and then uh, Adobe Spark Post is my favorite tool for uh, creating InfoPix, which I think is a highly underutilized product that definitely speaks to our visual society and our media-centric uh, society, and so it's a great, great product to make. So we are the EdTech Situation Room. Generally, you find us here at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central. Even if there's tornadoes or other natural disasters, we'll just get on the show and make others in our home quit streaming and go onto their T-Mobile devices for an hour. But we can find all of our links on edtechsr.com slash links. We encourage you to also follow us on Twitter at edtechsr. You'll find Jason and my Twitter handles there. Jason, where can people reach out to you? And are you going to be taking a bit of a lapse from writing? I can't imagine you might be tired of writing, but where, when you write, will you be sharing uh, aside from your dissertation committee on May 8th? Sure. I, well, um, I, oh, I'm working on a number of things right now. I have a couple of longstanding blog posts that, that I've been working on for some time that I haven't really had the time due to other writing projects to put into fruition. The one I'm most excited about, and I've started putting together some media on it, is that um, I am going to, based on a suggestion from a student and a parent in our organization, and also a conversation I had with a couple of teachers at the NCC conference in February in Seattle, I'm going to spend an entire day um, working only on my cell phone. Um, I'm going to try to do my job 100% from a cell phone. And I'm obviously going to, you know, I, I can't really pull that off. I can pull an awful lot off on my cell phone. But um, I'm going to look at different options, including a Bluetooth keyboard as an option, hooking up a mouse to it as an option. And then ultimately, my goal would be to, to actually have a docking station I have working with my phone. So I'm going to write a long post about that and probably post that up on the NCC Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncc.org. And then I'm also going to start posting long-form articles that I work on on Medium because it's interesting and I want to learn more about the platform. Absolutely. What about, what about you, Wes? Well, I have shared a few things on Medium, and it's interesting because when you kind of want something to have, perhaps have a greater reach, uh, send it out there. It's it's a good platform, but speedofcreativity.org is my normal spot. I uh, helped my wife put up a blog post. She hadn't done one since September on her website, shellyfryer.com. Um, I need to be posting a little bit more. But uh, podcast is there, and I uh, am looking forward to hopefully sharing a couple summer workshops and the new website, which will be continuing to take shape this summer, is Make Media Camp. So makemediacamp.com, and I hope to get a location confirmed for June 25th through the 27th in the Seattle area and then also July 10th through the 12th here in Oklahoma City. Got to get those things nailed down. So thank you for joining us. We encourage you to share feedback with us. And if you can, jo join us live. Until next time, stay savvy and stay safe and keep sharing generously. Even though Cambridge Analytica and all this Facebook news is, is here, you know, there's great digital sharing benefits. We just have to watch, you know, the platforms we give all our information to.